Welcome to another edition of the Market Pathways podcast. I'm Steve Levin, Editor-in-Chief of Market Pathways. And today, it's our pleasure to bring you a conversation on MedTech cybersecurity with Kevin Fu. Kevin is probably the leading expert in MedTech cybersecurity and truly one of the pioneers in this field, which has grown rapidly in the past decade. After all, it was only 10 years ago that FDA had its first staffers devoted to the issue of cybersecurity. And Kevin was a pioneer in this space, working in his lab at the University of Michigan, where he launched the Archimedes Center to focus on MedTech cybersecurity. And then Kevin became the first acting director for MedTech cybersecurity at FDA before returning to his post in Michigan and more recently moved to Northeastern University in Boston, where his lab and the Archimedes Center currently reside. We're pleased to bring you this conversation with Kevin. We talk with him periodically to update us on what's going on in the cybersecurity field in MedTech. And today's conversation will focus on some recent federal legislation in the U.S., along with some guidance documents, and also what's happening on a global scale in terms of international cybersecurity measures. So we hope you enjoy this conversation. Hey, I hope you can hear me. My voice isn't fully back yet from a little, little cold. No, it's not a problem. Is now a convenient time for you to talk? It's the only time. Okay. Well, I appreciate that. And uh, again, thanks for uh, reconnecting. Um, you know, after we spoke for the previous article, and then it was great having you at our conference in San Francisco. <clears throat> this is obviously cyber is just a topic of continuing interest. And, uh, you know, it's great to be able to check in with you uh, periodically and do the kind of follow up uh, pieces. So let me start by, first of well, welcoming you to the neighborhood since I I live in Concord, Massachusetts. So uh, your move to uh, Northeastern is is great. And talk a little bit about why you made that move and and kind of what's going to happen to the Archimedes Center. Or will that continue? Sure. So Northeastern is just an amazing school. When I toured Northeastern, I didn't realize just how great of a fit it is for the kinds of things I do and the kind of culture and values that um, uh, are, are really important to me. Uh, in particular, their emphasis on interdisciplinary research and computing for everybody. This really melds well with the Archimedes vision for trustworthy medical devices because most universities are very message-driven. But here at Northeastern, we're very mission-driven, and there's a real hunger to do better to help people. And Archimedes is actually a part of my laboratory, and I moved my laboratory, which includes Archimedes, uh, to Northeastern. Okay. Well, and of course, you had spent time at MIT, so you're you're back back in your home base, right? Oh, it, uh, yeah, it is true. Boston is home to dozens of universities, including uh, MIT, my alma mater. 
there, it's amazing how there's still quite a, a large contingent of my colleagues living in Boston. Right, right. So let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, your time at, at FDA. Um, just kind of assess uh, your your time there. I, when we spoke last, uh, you had taught, and this was right at the beginning of your tenure, you had talked about five goals that you had upon assuming uh, that position, and particularly we talked about um, training and mentoring CDRH staff, and also uh, post-market uh, review of, of submissions. So, assess kind of were, were you able to accomplish uh, what you what you set out to accomplish, and um, you know where do you think things stand with with the agency going forward? Oh, well, I really enjoyed working at FTA, and uh, I would encourage other people to as well. The, uh, the position I was in was acting director of medical device cybersecurity, and actually I continue working with FDA. I headed to an event with FDA today, actually. Okay. Uh, and I think, you know, you just read the news, you can see all the outcomes of, of the great group of people there. Uh, you've got the draft uh, final guidance that's going through its finalization process. You've got the, what became the omnibus bill uh, that, uh, you know, evolved from uh, the original patch act. You can see a lot of language uh, in the patch act matching uh, what's inside um, the omnibus bill. We've got a great amount of work going on with IMDRF just today. They they released a new document uh, from the IMDRF right. uh, that's led by uh, Aston Ross uh, at FDA. Uh, on the post-market side, you're seeing there's a great team at FDA that's been... Oh, pardon me as I'm just dodging traffic. Okay. Um, <laughs> Like I said, only time I have. I'm literally booked until June. No, um, no problem. But post-market, uh, there's just an amazing team to handle vulnerabilities. But we, we voiced the alarm that there were no full-time people, no full-time, 100% dedicated staff to post-market issues with cybersecurity uh, at FDA. And there was a looming crisis. If two vulnerabilities were discovered on the same day, it, it would have been unlikely that FDA could have had the, the personnel in place to handle that. And so it's really good to see in the omnibus bill a really much needed uh, support of, uh, now I'm dodging a bicycle in a highway, um, <laughs> uh, much needed support for hiring uh, personnel for cybersecurity. I think those are some of the interesting points of, of late. I want to touch a little bit more on both the uh, the draft guidance and the the omnibus bill, but let me also um, raise concerns that I'm sure you've heard. Which is, uh, do you know what the agency's plans are as far as naming a successor? Because some people have got concerned that. Um, about how committed the FDA really is to cyber if they're not going to name a, a, a successor to you? Oh, uh, I'm certain FDA is going to name a successor. Uh, with the changes going on with the omnibus bill and the new funding, I think it's really important to let that all sink in in the agency because you need to hire somebody 
uh, you know, right before there's major change, like uh, what the omnibus bill from Congress is mandating. So I suspect the FDA is trying to understand how is that position going to evolve. Uh, I'm certainly planning to be involved with uh, encouraging others to apply to that position. Uh, it's, it is a tough position. There aren't a whole lot of people uh, who are qualified in this space who uh, you know, have industrial experience, uh, have the credibility of, of uh, original work, uh, as well as uh, that uh, ability to work in the regulatory circles. Um, but, but I do think these people exist, and uh, I'm, I'm confident FDA will be hosting a position. Uh, I don't speak for FDA, so I can't uh, right, right. Uh, her, but uh, I can just say in all my uh, experiences, I, I believe FDA has uh, all intentions to fill that position. Right. So let's just touch briefly on um, both the the draft guidance and the omnibus bill. And again, obviously, uh, you know, the, until these are final, there they can obviously change. But but can you touch on? Let's start with the draft guidance. The um, the highlights, in other words, what do you think are some of the key points um, that, and again, uh, I understand this is still a draft document, um, but what are some of the key points for industry to keep in mind that could emerge from this draft guidance? Right. Well, like any fast-moving industry, there's always change. In cybersecurity is very closely related to the hockey stick growth of, of Silicon Valley. And so you see that in the draft guidance. And FDA, in their public comments, were quite clear that they expect things to change over time uh, because the environment is changing, because the threats are changing. And so I think that that um, philosophy is really a big part of that draft guidance. Uh, in particular, you'll, you know, the first thing you'll notice is the title change more toward quality systems, uh, so that much more system-level thinking. You'll also see in that draft guidance that there's much more specific technical advice. Uh, in uh, the very first uh, free market guidance, which was around 2013, 2014, that was about five pages. It sort of listed things like, oh, your traceability matrices for understanding the cybersecurity risks, keep your systems up to date. Uh, this document encompasses a decade of feedback from the community and stakeholders understanding uh, best practices and the ways uh, to have meaningful cybersecurity built in. So in particular, you're going to find inside there things like uh, software bill of materials. You're going to find discussion of threat modeling. Uh, those, those are two really big things uh, inside that document. Um, you also see a lot more discussion on the um, third-party software. Um, so, for instance, um, the, the S-bombs that are requested in the draft guidance uh, are not only about the, uh, the software components, but it's about understanding the known vulnerabilities of each of those soft, software components. And then uh, if you look carefully in the draft guidance, FDA's uh, document later states that, you know, if you, if you choose not to include that kind of information in the S-bomb, that's okay, but you should submit it separately uh, for the review process uh, because that's an essential part of the risk management uh, of these medical devices. And what about the legislation, the uh, the the omnibus bill? In other words, uh, 
Are you pleased with what's in, in, in there? And again, what should, what should industry keep an eye out for in that bill? Yeah, I'm, I'm very pleased with the omnibus bill. Um, it, uh, I think it, it reflects something that a large number of stakeholders have been asking for for years, uh, including a large parts of the industry, especially some of the leading medical device manufacturers asking for these kinds of provisions because it's, it's just common sense. If you're working in the medical device cybersecurity field like me, we, this is old news. All these ideas uh, are things that we've been recommending for 10 or 20 years. Um, so what's interesting is it's now part of federal law. Um, so uh, can you that really speaks. Evan, Kevin, can yes. you give me a couple, just give me a couple examples of what you're talking about. Uh, I'm not quite sure. Uh, oh, uh, examples of which part? Examples that are in the in the omnibus bill that are examples of what you're talking about in terms of things for that you know have been common. Uh, things have been ex really for several years that industry has been looking for. Oh, things like patchability. Uh, so devices need to be patchable. Uh, that's, uh, I mean, um, I'm not the only one who's been saying this, but uh, I definitely recall giving presentations at FDA uh, in 2006 uh, on these issues of uh, patchability and software updates. One of my early publications was about how to do software updates properly on medical devices in 2007 or so. Uh, you talk to the health delivery organizations, they want things to be patchable. Um, they don't want to see legacy, unsupported operating systems like Windows XP or old versions of Windows uh, in their clinical settings. Those, those simply are not securable. Um, so that's that's one of the more obvious ones in my view. Um, and you can find old documents from FDA, facts and fact sheets, for instance, where they they spend a lot of time dispelling myths because. Um, there, there are still people out there who misinterpret uh, some of the regulations. They would say, oh, you know, a false assertion might be, oh, we can't provide updates to our medical device software because of FDA rules. That's actually false. Uh, but now the, the law makes it quite explicit. Uh, it's expected full stop. Mm-hmm. You know, FDA has denied 510K applications solely for cyber deficiencies. Has that, do you think, improved the quality of the cyber standards in terms of, you know, has that kind of stick, uh, you know, improved the quality of, uh, to show that, uh, to show industry that, that the agency is, is serious about enforcing uh, cyber issues? Uh, I do think this has helped greatly. Compared to today versus 20 years ago, the threat model and the active threats out there, 20 years ago, there were just a few people like myself, and we were talking more about hypothetical risk. We said, well, what if somebody could break into a medical device? Or, you know, look, we can show you we can break into a medical device. You know, here's a, a college student over one weekend being able to break into a medical device, causing, uh, you know, significant risk if this were happening to a patient. Today, there are nation-state threats, and those are well-documented, things like ransomware, uh, financially motivated, uh, sophisticated adversaries. So uh, I think it's extremely important that uh, de devices that uh, aren't 
paying attention to the cybersecurity engineering in an adequate way, uh, you know, we realize that no, they actually do have to do their homework. Um, so cybersecurity engineering, it's, um, it's not easy, but it's necessary. Uh, it's been done. Uh, there are ways to manage the risk, but I can tell you there are you know, plenty of wrong ways to do it. everyone, I'm Joey Brenneman from Offscript Health, and we are excited to introduce you to Offscript Health's latest podcast series called Before We Die, the world's best podcast about the med tech industry. Every day, advances in technology are providing new, less invasive options in healthcare. Many of them are born out of the idea that there has to be a better way. On this show, we will be talking with the rock star innovators and inventors of the medtech industry who felt the same way, which inspired them to create a new device or challenge a way that a procedure was done. And most people don't even know who they are. So download and subscribe to Before We Die, wherever you get your podcasts. You'll get full episodes every Tuesday and on Thursdays. You'll get our Lab Before Slab mini episodes where Sandy, John, and Craig geek out about the latest happenings in the med tech world. Who would have thought that medical innovation could be so riveting? Hey, have you heard of Market Pathways? Market Pathways provides the most in-depth analysis you'll find of the changes happening in medical device regulation and reimbursement every day. They address the complexity in regulatory affairs and beyond by helping you digest and contextualize technical topics like Medicare and MDR. Visit mystrategist.com trial today to start your free five-day trial to Market Pathways. Again, that's mystrategist.com trial for five days of online access. So, you know, if I were at FDA, if, if I had a magic wand, for instance, if a medical device manufacturer submitted a 510K that said, oh, you just have to put this on a secure hospital network, or, oh, you just have to put this behind the perimeter of a firewall, I, I would immediately reject that, saying that's that's uh, uh, such a fantasy. Like, you know, that's very quaint uh, 1990s threat modeling. Um, but uh, I'm not at FDA, uh, and I think what you'll see actually at FDA is a much more collaborative approach where you know, a deficient manufacturer can be given some education on you know, being pointed to standards, uh, being pointed to best practices if they make some of these you know, baby step mistakes. Um, and in fact, uh, you'll see in that public announcement from FDA uh, just, just last month, where they talked about finalizing their immediate guidance to address the omnibus bill, uh, they explain how they're giving this approximately six-month period while they'll be working with industry to help them with their deficiencies rather than immediately uh, doing RTA. Um, but, but of course, they, they have made quite clear uh, in their final guidance uh, that after that October time period, uh, the, that's when the learning period uh, is shifting to uh, no longer uh, uh, accepting and simply returning uh, documents that don't meet those minimum uh, basic documentation for cybersecurity. Right, right. 
You mentioned threat models. One question that I got um, after our last article and after you, you spoke at our conference um, was people wondering uh, whether have, have threat models changed in response to the current international situation. For example, top of mind was, of course, the, the situation in, in Ukraine with Russia, but also uh, the, the challenges we've uh, faced with China, Iran, even perhaps North Korea. How do you uh, address the current state of threat models in terms of uh, threats from nation states as opposed to kind of lone wolf hackers? Yeah, well, the nice thing about a good threat model is that a good threat model will be agile. It's adaptable. Um, I would say uh, a less useful threat model is one that's sort of locked into a specific technology today. Uh, you know, talking about specific versions of software, that, that generally is not helpful because it's, it's hard to evolve over time. So I, I think you'll find that if a manufacturer does a good job on their threat model, uh, it will be able to adapt to these um, uh, constantly shifting threats. And, and that's one of the main reasons why a lot of these steps are in place, because we all know that the threats today are not going to be the threats 10 years from now. now what's, what's ransomware 4.0? Nobody really knows. Um, but we need to make the threat models adaptable to the lifetime, the expected lifetime of the device. Um, so there's a huge difference uh, if the device is going to be, you know, um, uh, uh, incinerated, uh, uh, discarded, uh, versus capital equipment that may be around for decades. Um, those devices that will be around for decades will have a more challenging time because they need to be more adaptable than the ones that um, uh, are uh, just for a, a moment in time. Right. So, you know, another area that we've talked about in the past is the need for total life cycle, uh, taking a total life cycle approach um, as opposed to, let's say, just focus on exclusively legacy or exclusively new devices. Talk about uh, the, the why a total life cycle approach is so critical. And um, and I, I want to segue that into the the IMDRF uh, guidance that you that you mentioned. Right. Well, I mean, in my view, uh, uh, if you're referring to the GPLC, the Total Product Life Cycle uh, approach at FDA, uh, in my view, that that fits uh, really well with the idea of uh, outcomes, uh, uh, as opposed to um, uh, just individual components. Um, so the name of the game is primarily safety and effectiveness. And so uh, that's the model that the industry has accepted. That's the model that the community uh, has come up with collaboratively, the total product life cycle approach. Uh, I don't know of a better way to do it. Um, of course, you, you need a healthy balance between systems thinking and component level thinking. Uh, and I think you'll find in the draft guidance and the omnibus bill examples uh, of components that will be useful toward a total product life cycle approach to protecting cybersecurity. Uh, and, and again, those examples like the SBOM and threat modeling, um, uh, some of the issues of legacy devices and being more explicit uh, about responsibility over time, 
Um, those are all things that through industry standards groups uh, and uh, stakeholder collaboration, that those particular approaches uh, are well believed to help um, in, in protecting for that total product life cycle. Um, the endpoint being the retirement um, uh, and, and the devices are no longer on the market. And do you find that industry is receptive to a TPLC approach? Um, I do, but of course, you know, uh, saying like industry is saying like, oh, all kids or you know, all adults right, do this. Right. You're going to find you know variation. I think that's normal, and um, uh, you know, I recognize that uh, some manufacturers are frustrated because you know this is hard work. Um, Nobody wakes up in the morning, I think, and says, I wish we had more security threats. Uh, well, you know, just, of course we don't want to have these problems, but the fact is these problems exist. Uh, and so this is a very collaborative industry. Uh, you'll have manufacturers and regulators and vendors and patients and physicians uh, working together and communicating to understand best uh, ways forward. Um, I've worked in uh, other industries such as the payment card industry. Uh, and relative to that, I, I'm just really happy to see the different stakeholders speaking with each other uh, and exchanging ideas, frankly. And, you know, when they have a disagreement, they voice that disagreement. Um, but there are many ways, uh, different approaches. Uh, but in the medical device community, the, the way forward is very consensus-driven. And so I think uh, you'll find these, uh, at least from the regulatory perspective, uh, draft guidance and such, I, I find that those are all products of years of collaboration and, and working with stakeholders um, to uh, consider uh, you know, different approaches and ideas for protecting the cybersecurity medical devices and, and ensuring safety and effectiveness. That's a great segue into the last area I just want to touch on, which is international. And uh, we we alluded to the recent IMDRF guidance. You know, it's hard it's hard enough to work uh, within the U.S. on all the stakeholders that you mentioned and uh, building a collaborative uh, of in, environment. Um, doing that on an international level, uh, you know, compounds the degree of difficulty, so to speak. Um, talk, can you talk? a little bit about um, about the IMDRF guidance. Um, I noticed they also uh, heavily uh, discuss uh, SBOMS, which I think is a horrible acronym, but uh, that's the acronym that uh, everyone uses. Um, but, but talk a little bit about that, the IMDRF guidance, and what does that mean for, because again, we're talking about an international industry with medical devices. So um, what does that mean, the IMDRF guidance? in terms of uh, moving things forward on an international level. Right. Well, let me just, uh, especially for readers who might not be familiar uh, with the IMDRF, so that's the International Medical Device Regulators Forum. Uh, uh, it, uh, so in my role at FDA, I participated in this group. Um, you will typically find uh, a couple dozen countries uh, represented. Uh, you'll have representatives from the industry, major stakeholders representing the entire medical device industry uh, involved in this group, as well as healthcare delivery organizations. Um, so it's uh, it's a body that uh, looks to represent um, uh, all the stakeholders of this group. Um, although they do not issue regulatory uh, 
you know, guidance in the sense of FDA uh, issuing its guidance. What they do issue are uh, what I would consider to be frameworks such that other co- uh, countries uh, can adopt uh, language much more easily so that there's more consistency across borders. Uh, so, you know, nobody, I think, wants to make a product where they need 200 different versions for each country. Uh, and so I think what you'll find with the IMDRF is that it's going to bring more consistency to the process. Um, uh, and uh, providing that helpful template language as each com- uh, excuse me, as each country uh, implements their models. And, and I think one of the reasons you're seeing countries adopting language uh, that's very consistent and similar is, is because of the IMDRF. It's because that framework is there. Uh, thank goodness, otherwise we might be having radically different approaches everywhere. Uh, so I, I'm really happy that the IMDRF can help bring more consistency uh, to, to this regulatory process uh, with these frameworks. And can you just dig down a little bit and talk a little bit about the most recent guidance that the IMDRF uh, issued? And um, it, it seemed to touch on a couple of the areas that we have been talking about, um, both uh, SBOMs and uh, uh, TPLC approach. So um, are you referring to uh, legacy devices and, and SBOM? Right. Yeah, so maybe uh, start with SBOM and, and then do Legacy Bomb. Uh, so Software Bill of Materials um, is a complicated area. Uh, there's many different ways to do it. There are many different products out there. Um, at a very high level, uh, a Software Bill of Materials is sort of like an ingredients list for what's on the inside of the system in terms of, of the software. And um, from an FDA perspective, software includes things like firmware. Um, this is really important because uh, the um, uh, people receiving these medical devices or uh, organizations like uh, health delivery organizations they would have a really hard time doing the risk management if they don't know what's on the inside. For instance, a really easy one would be, hey, does this run Windows XP? Uh, it's really helpful to know because that's not a securable operating system. Um, or if a computer vulnerability comes out uh, in a very generic software package like Log4j or OpenSSL, a very natural question is, hey, which medical devices in my hospital are affected? Uh, SBOMs over time are going to help make that much more methodical, uh, able to uh, look where you need to look rather than running around with your hair on fire. Uh, S-bombs in the IMDRF document, you'll see other use cases mentioned. In the regulatory review process, S-bombs are really helpful for regulators and the reviewing teams to understand the risk of what's on the inside so that they can match that with the controls that the manufacturer has designed um, for for any of those risks. So, for instance, if there's a a component with a known vulnerability that has no fix, uh, the manufacturer may propose some of approach um, to mitigate those, those risks. Um, um, so those are just a couple of the many use cases of SBOM. And, and the IMDRF document helps a lot with terminology, um, because if we have an inconsistent terminology, you, you're going to find, I think, a lot more confusion. Uh, we don't need more confusion. There's already enough confusion. Uh, and so having an IMDRF document as a framework for the language just on its own is already helpful so that when 
regulators, manufacturers, and HDOs are, are speaking, um, they can say, hey, when you say legacy, do you mean legacy in, in the sense of uh, the IMTRF document? Um, you know, which language are you speaking? Um, and so I, I think that's going to be really helpful. Um, moving on to the legacy document, um, which was just recently uh, published, uh, there, there are... Um, there's a, a legacy device, um, in my view, is a device that is not only insecure, but is insecurable. Um, it's, it's simply technically infeasible to keep that device secure anymore. Maybe it's lived well beyond its design parameters uh, from the threat models of its, of its early days to the threat model of today or tomorrow. Um, that becomes a legacy device. And so the IMDRF document really helps to tease out the different ways of shifting responsibility. So, for instance, at what point does a third-party uh, third software package uh, shift from becoming a manufacturer's responsibility to maintain secure, to keep secure versus shifting to a healthcare delivery organization? So, you know, an extreme example might be... Uh, 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 you know, there's a, well, two extremes would be there's a, a, a vulnerability in an operating system that is actively. Then more than likely you would expect to see the manufacturer responsible for ensuring that patch gets delivered. Um, but there will become a time at which, um, of course, you know, predetermined, just like if you said, hey, this car is going to last 100,000 miles. Uh, you know, you would expect to see some kind of language of that saying, you know, after uh, so much time, um, you would expect to have to retire this device because it's likely that the software will be no longer securable. And so that's when you start to see shifting your responsibility from manufacturers to healthcare delivery organizations. Um, a key part, though, is being very explicit uh, about this. Um, contractually, uh, because nobody wants a surprise uh, 10 years later saying, hey, we decided to make this your responsibility. So it's it's really important, and, and the document goes into some suggestions in this space about how to be more upfront um, between uh, buyers and sellers, so providers uh, and manufacturers, uh, about this kind of shift in responsibility for legacy devices. Um, but those are a few things uh, that I've seen from IMDRF that um, I really appreciate and, again, brings more clarity and consistency globally for medical device security. Well, Kevin, that's great. I want to be respectful of your time. Um, last question is if companies want to reach out to you at Northeastern, what's the best way that they can contact you? Well, um, you can find me at Northeastern, uh, at northeastern.edu. Uh, Archimedes is resuming its training workshops September 20 and 21 in Boston. Uh, Suzanne Schwartz uh, will be our keynote opening speaker uh, on September 20. And we also have training on threat modeling uh, and SBOM and some of the regulatory affairs aspects uh, two days before on September uh, uh, the Monday and Tuesday uh, before our event. Um, so if you go to secure-medicine.org uh, slash events, uh, you can find these events listed out, uh, and we'll be posting that registration information later this summer. 
Great. Well, Kevin, always great to connect with you, and I look forward to staying in touch, particularly now that you're uh, in my backyard. So welcome, welcome back to Boston. I appreciate it, and thanks to you for all the insightful questions. This, this is what I really like, uh, the events you put on. I, I, I really like how it, 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 it really gets to the material, and I can tell you spent a lot of time thinking about the questions, so I really appreciate you know, the thoughtful questions. Always good to talk to you, Kevin. Have a good day. We hope you enjoyed this conversation with Kevin Fu on MedTech Cybersecurity. To learn more about this topic, see the article that we did with Kevin in the May issue of Market Pathways. We look forward to bringing you the next edition of the Market Pathways podcast. And until then, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed that episode. Your support is valuable and makes us better. Please remember to leave a review and rate Market Pathways on Apple Podcasts or wherever you happen to listen. 